Welcome back to Life on the Ridge in the Age of COVID-19, a podcast that hopes to make you smile, laugh, relate, or just plain distract you from the new reality that is the year 2020. My name is Mark. I hope this recording finds you and finds you well. Let's start with an introduction to this episode of the podcast. Hello! Hello! Good morning! Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Allow myself to introduce myself. And here we go. So as you may just have noticed, I am now including little drops of clips to separate the different segments. Uh, There are various little things from movies, music shows stuff like that but anyway they're supposed to accentuate the separation of the topics uh to better allow the podcast flow also to help me keep me more organized and allow some familiarity with the recording on a week-in week-out basis additionally i've switched around some of the segments and now there isn't so much a main event as that it's an introduction to the top 10 list so it seems with the guests and various feedback that I've gotten. The the top 10 lists are kind of the most fun little part of what I'm trying to do here, and everyone loves a list and to rank and argue about it. So the top 10 list is kind of the main focus with the guest, and the main event is now kind of condensed into just an intro to the the top 10 list, an introduction of the guest, and then kind of discussing the the topic of the top 10 list and then getting into the list itself. Additionally, uh, the Something Positive segment that's at the beginning kind of turned into over a few episodes more of shout-outs like from our previous iteration of Life on the Ridge. So I'm going to kind of mix the two together and it's going to be positive plus shout-outs and you'll see what I mean here in just a moment. We're going to keep the review and the Bible section. So as a preview, you notice the intro music, the subject if you're familiar with movie soundtracks will be the Harry Potter series now I won't have to do with the films but you know you can't hear the music from the books so we'll get further into that when I introduce our guest who will remain for the time being a mystery but anyway without further ado let's get to our shout out slash positivity I'm positive only fools are positive the first shout out I want to make mention of is this past week was my parents' 41st wedding anniversary, and I wanted to mention this for a few reasons. One, because that's something to be celebrated every year is your wedding anniversary. Two, because 41 years is quite a long time, and they have always been an excellent example of marriage to myself and my three sisters. I recall one time when I was younger and didn't fully understand the ways of the world entirely, but I questioned the fact that my parents loved each other just because they did not show a lot of physical affection towards each other in front of us kids. And this I'm talking about when I was really young, like six or seven or something. And I probably asked my mom something along the lines of, mom, why don't you love dad? And she looked at me like I was crazy and was like, what do you mean? Why don't I love dad? Of course I love dad. And she asked me, why did I think that? And I kind of mentioned You know, I didn't see them exchanging physical indications of love. And I also mentioned the various Sunday morning debates that mom and dad would get into generally revolving around religion. Well, more specifically, the differences in Christian denominations, uh, seeing as how they were from two different denominational backgrounds. But after church, I remember 
that they would argue about things in a civil manner, but raised voices weren't uncommon. Uh, driving on the way home in the car, and then it would spill into the kitchen where they'd be standing and discussing and sometimes in raised voices. And of course, if you know any of the members of my immediate family, we're all very loud people. So really the raised voices was more just like the regular talking volume. But as a child, I didn't fully comprehend the components of an adult conversation. Anyways, I just remember this. I don't remember all the details of this conversation, but my mom kind of was probably chuckling in the back of her mind Talk, talk, talking to this small child about love and what love really is. And so I've always thought about that conversation and how love can manifest itself in many ways, but the devotion and the consistency is definitely there for my parents. And I just want to give them a shout out for the celebration of their anniversary and what they've meant to me and our family and all of our uh, extended family and all the grandchildren and just the great example that they have given to us. Additionally, another family member I want to mention was my sister Rachel, who celebrated her birthday in the last few days. And Rachel was the sister who was closest to me in age, so I felt like growing up we kind of were in cahoots with each other a lot, and we got to experience high school together, so I feel like we grew a lot closer than I did get to grow with my other sisters just because we weren't experiencing the same things in life around the same time and it's a little harder to relate to but I just want to say happy birthday to Rachel and I hope you had a wonderful day with you and your family and that they treated you like a queen not that they don't on other days but that perhaps maybe you got some time for relaxation especially with the stresses in your life that are going on right now also I have to apologize to my other sister, Grace, for not mentioning her birthday when it came around. That was the first podcast that came out, so I will do a retroactive wishing of a happy birthday to my sister, Grace, who celebrated her birthday at the beginning of April, and I hope that she had a good day and that the kids were good for her and that she got to enjoy a dessert, which I know is a big deal in their household, is the birthday dessert. She, uh... Usually she's the one making it, being the mom of the children and wife to Michael, but in this case she got to enjoy her dessert, and I hope that that was very nice as well. So I apologize for originally forgetting. Her birthday was sandwiched between my friend's birthdays, who I gave a long soliloquy about in the first podcast, but in this case I'm giving her her just due. Now the last thing I wanted to mention that is both a shout-out and something very positive is the graduation of my friend and podcast guest Allison who received her second teaching related master's degree this one from the prestigious Washington University in St. Louis and just to congratulate you Allison say well done say how proud we are of you us being the Maori family all four of us how much time and effort we know went into it and how stressful it must have been to juggle that your teaching your coaching and all the things that life was throwing at you i'm incredibly impressed and proud of your accomplishments and i just wanted to give you a shout out and to tell everyone how positive of an example that is to me and how we can do anything that we put our mind to if we are determined enough and put forth the effort. So congratulations, Allison. And now let us go to 
the main event. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Let's get ready to rumble! Okay, so I'm here with Tracy, my friend who I met through my oldest friend, David. But Tracy is David's wife, but I still view her as my close friend. I welcome you to the podcast, Tracy. How are you? I'm doing well. Long-time listener, first-time guest. <laughs> <laughs> Long-time listener for a podcast that is six yeah, episodes. All, all five or six, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess that, I guess that still counts. So Tracy and I will be doing a top 10 list of our favorite moments in the Harry Potter book series, the original book series one through seven, not any of the other extracurriculars that are supposedly canon, but I refuse to admit that Cursed Child is canon. But before we get into the list, I kind of just want to talk about how you came to be such a big Harry Potter fan. Yeah, and I think... You know, kids that grew up in the time period that we did, I would say that most of my friends at least read the book series. So it's hard to say I'm unique in calling myself a Harry Potter fan. But I think what I would what I would say about our generation is the unique time that we were in our lives and how that really mirrored where Harry was and just how the story plays out for him. The first book came out in the U.S. in, I think it was 1998, and I was nine years old at that time. Harry was just turning 11, but then just based on the publication dates for the books, it ended up syncing up where we were the same age as Harry, or just about um, when we were graduating high school. And so I think just the way that that fit together really made this series a special one for people, like I said, that grew up grew up around the same time we did. Um, and I think it really, the series evolves and it grows up with you. I think most people would agree that the maturity level of the writing, the, the types of themes that Rowling deals with kind of do evolve. And so, you know, you never really felt like, well, I'm still reading that same book I read back in elementary school. It was something that you continued on with and journeyed with. And so, um, you know, just the idea of having this secret world that coexists with the world we all know is something I think that a nine-year-old child would really gravitate toward. And so once you're hooked, you can't really, can't really put it down. Would you say your experience was similar? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it has to do with age. Like you said, we were essentially the same age as Harry throughout the journey. Um, It's one of those fantasy fictional worlds. You know, Hogwarts is now on par with Middle Earth and Narnia and and other uh, fictional worlds that are, you know, ingrained in in the culture, regardless of, of the time period. I could see a little bit of myself in Harry just because he wasn't ever super awesome at anything per se. And I will get probably I'm sure we'll discuss Harry further in in the top 10. But he kind of never well, he was he was always really good at Quidditch. So I can't say that I was necessarily the athlete that he was, but he uh, just seemed to be kind of average, which was kind of endearing. And like you said, the the fact that this world was embedded into our world was fascinating. Some of the memories that I have of, of growing up are just entwined with Harry Potter, and it's impossible to separate the two. But I do want to mention another reason why Tracy is the one doing this top 10 is because she w- uh, majored in English in college. So she has a very 
analytical and and worthy mind for this kind of thing whereas i'm just going off of the seat of my pants and my my harry potter fandom she has actual <laughs> she has actual academic knowledge to dissect these things and and give us some very good insight so i'm excited for that aspect as well i had no idea that that's one of the reasons why you asked me <laughs> you know it I kind of just made that up on the spot. I've, it's still pertinent, though. Cool. Well, I, uh, I hope I don't disappoint. I'm like furiously oh, adding some notes here. <laughs> no, no, no. That would be impossible. But before we start, I will say, if you have not finished the series, and this is probably specifically for my oldest sister, who has still not done book seven, I would advise you not to listen because there will be major spoilers i imagine there will be there is in my list for book seven i shouldn't assume for tracy's list but that's your spoiler warning listeners and here we go 11 a 10 number nine eight seven six five four three two All right, so here's my first question. Did you have any honorable mentions? So I do have a couple of honorable mentions and I was just going to, you know, take your lead on whether or not we bring those up. When I first went through my, you know, unadulterated list and just kind of went through everything, I had like 27 moments or something like that. So, really? you know, I, I got it down. I have three honorable mentions. I don't have to list all three. We could do one or... Yeah, oh, you I'll, can go, go go through all three. Let's hear them. Okay. Um, well, my first honorable mention uh, is from The Goblet of Fire. And I don't know if you're doing chapters, but I looked it up. It's chapter 15, and it's when the schools Bobaton and Durmstrang arrive at Hogwarts. Um, this moment, and, you know, it's funny, and I hate to say this, but this moment was adulterated for me by the film or my memory of it by the film <laughs> of how you imagine them coming in. So I had to go back and kind of find some things online to make sure I was grabbing it from the book. But um, I just, for me, I remember where I was as a kid when I read the fourth book and this scene just kind of blew my mind as the universe of the wizarding world expanded suddenly. You know, we've been living in this Hogwarts bubble for three books. Yeah. And so suddenly the, even just the concept of, oh, yeah, there are wizards outside of England. That totally makes sense. And, you know, beyond the seven book series, we learned that there's, you know, an American school and things like that. But I think this was just a lot of fanfare, a lot of fun for me. It, it was just a, a cool scene to imagine in my head. Cool. I like it. What's your next uh, honorable mention? Um, my next one is actually from the first book. So Sorcerer's Stone or whatever you want to call that. Um, it's when Harry first flies on a broom and Professor McGonagall catches him, but instead of punishing him, decides to introduce him to Oliver Wood as the captain of the Gryffindor Quidditch team um, because she thinks he'd make a great seeker. And I think a lot of there's a lot of reasons for me why this scene is so memorable. And one of my favorites is one, the whole introduction into Quidditch is awesome. This is obviously the sport that they play. And I like the idea. And you mentioned this earlier, Harry to just have this natural knack <laughs> for the sport. Right. But, um, but it also is your first introduction to this professor that really becomes an ally to Harry throughout the series you know, the way that she's described at first, you expect her to be someone that's a little more stern and maybe no fun, but she surprised 
is doing something he's not supposed to do, her first thought was, wow, he'd make a really good seeker. And so, I don't know, I, I just kind of love that turn and the way it sets up her character. I remember one of my favorite things about that uh, little scene is when she's looking for wood and then Harry's like, wood, is that some sort of punishment or stick that he would be beaten with? <laughs> just because he was used to how the muggles would handle discipline. Uh, and Oliver's right, last name right. happened to be Wood. That that always made me chuckle. Right. Typically, he would be locked up in the, you know, <laughs> under the stairs closet for a month or something like that. Right. All right. What is your finerable, finerable, final honorable mention? All right. My last honorable mention is, um, oh, it's from Chamber of Secrets when it's towards the end. So Harry has just rescued Jenny from the Chamber of Secrets, and he's really burdened by this thought that he was meant to be in Slytherin, and it's something that he struggles with the entire book because he's wondering, am I the heir of Slytherin? I can speak Parseltongue, and he has all these questions. The sorting hat gave me that option, and in this scene, Dumbledore kind of explains to him kind of what that the nature of being a Gryffindor really is, and he tells him something like, you know, it's not so much your abilities that the sorting hat is weighing, it's the choices that you're able to make and for me, I mean, this is just kind of a sentimental moment, I guess, but it establishes the relationship that Harry and Dumbledore, you know, at that relationship and that bond. And it's just kind of a cool thought that Harry is this different kind of wizard. And I know that we can talk about this more about how he also had a lot of help a lot along the way, but there is something very innate about him. And Dumbledore keeps pointing it out that it's his sense of love and a sense of duty and a sense of loyalty to his friends that really makes him powerful in a way. And so, I don't know, that scene just stuck out to me as kind of the first time we get a hint of that. And of course that has developed and evolved over the series. Right. I will say, I, I like, I like that pick. My opinion of Harry is incredibly low for someone who loves the series so much <laughs> because I think most hardcore fans can agree that Hermione is the true driving force behind the trio. I mean, they all have their strengths and weaknesses, but without Hermione, obviously, you know, they would never have survived all of their encounters, except for perhaps the uh, end of the third book where Harry is the true hero in that regard, at least when him and Hermione are yeah. Anyway, I just, <laughs> I just want to preface my list by letting the listeners know that I'm definitely down on Harry. Now I know he has a lot of strengths, but I'm not always impressed with how he handles certain situations. But with that being said, I will say that my honorable mention is from the Sorcerer's Stone, chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised. And it's the moment where you find out what the mirror is showing you. And it was very endearing that Harry doesn't see riches or success like Ron does. He sees his family. And so you really get a sense for how much Harry truly misses his parents, even though he can't remember them or any of his other relatives for that matter. And it's this first display of that strong bond that will both retroactively through Lily's sacrifice, but then going forward, you know, his, the memories of his parents are such powerful influences in his life for people that he never actually got to talk to, or at least talk to for real. I, I've per, perhaps he had some sort of conversation, him being one year old, but the, the sheer memory of them drove him to make so many of the different decisions that he made. And that scene where Dumbledore is explaining, it's really 
really powerful to me. Also, my only inclusion from the Sorcerer's Stone, but all seven books did happen to make it on my list and that was not intentional. I was going to ask you that. Um, I think all but one made it on mine. Or no, I think it is now that it's in the honorable mention. So I take that back. Um, but yeah, just to quickly comment on what you just said, I that was actually something that was on my longer list and I did end up cutting. But I think you're right in that I love kind of the paradox and she does this throughout the series that Rowling does with the mirror of it's showing you what you most desire. And that's something you don't really have much control over. It's a reflection and that's why it's a mirror, right? But it's a reflection of what you really have in your heart. And in this interesting way, Quarrel or Voldemort would never have been able to get the Sorcerer's Stone because the intention was always to be able to use it and, you know, abuse it in some way. But Harry's heart was pure. Maybe it was a little bit of ignorance too that kind of helped him there but he just wanted to do right and he just wanted to be with his parents and he just wanted these really innocent childlike things so I don't know I think there's a message there in how that childlikeness is required of us sometimes and um also didn't know that that's how you pronounce it until the movies (laughs) (laughs) well there were a lot of people who didn't realize that it was desire spelled backwards for a really long time so Probably not. See, I, don't, I don't remember when I realized that, but I think I always pronounced it in my head as arised because that's just how it's spelled. Right. But um, I mean, in the same way that nobody knew that Hermione was Hermione <laughs> until book four. Oh, really? I always, I always thought it was Hermione. I was never a Hermione. Well, was that because of the movies? Did you watch the movies as they came out? Uh, as they came out, yes, but I had read one through three before the first movie came out. Okay. Or one through four. Because wait, the Do you first know what movie I'm referring out- to in the fourth book where she has to phonetically spell it out for Victor Crumb? For yeah. me, that was the first time I realized, oh, that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's just not a very common name in America, so. Sure. We, we, we weren't It probably to it. is a little more now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, probably. All right. So before we get to the real meat here, just remember, we don't want to try and spoil any of our future picks. So if if we happen to intersect at all, don't necessarily, I mean, it's not a big deal, but just in case to keep the fun and suspense going, you want to try and keep them under wraps. So go ahead. Let's hear what your number 10 favorite moment from the Harry Potter series is. All right, my number 10 moment, and this is my uh, Sorcerer's Stone selection. Again, not on purpose, but that's just where it landed. Um, Sorcerer's Stone chapter five, when Harry gets his wand at Ollivander's. I was really trying to pick my favorite scene from his first trip to Diagon Alley. I, I think it has to be the wand scene, just because, well, one, the whole adventure into this place is you know, as the reader, it's our first entrance into the magical world. So, you know, from tapping the bricks to get into the space to going to Gringotts for the first time and things like that, it's it's all just, you know, smoke and mirrors for lack of a better phrase. But when you go to Ollivander's, it's the first time that you feel like the magic is real. Um, Ollivander tells him that it's the wand that chooses the wizard. And there's something very strange about that when you're a nine-year-old reading this. But um, yeah, I think just imagining how that works and Harry's trying out the different wands and he's getting that first real connection to this magical future that he has is just 
really cool. Also seems very tedious to go through a shop full of wands until you find the one that, you know, blows sparks for you. But um, yeah, I just, I love this moment. Yeah, it's a very, very pivotal moment uh, with the foresight of having read the entire series and certainly very interesting and fun. And they have a bit of, not to delve too much into the movies, but they, you know, they mix in a little comedy there where, you know, he waves it, gives it a flick and the things are flying off the shelves. And John Hurt has some witty line as Ollivander is like, not quite that one or something, but (laughs) yeah, that's good. I hadn't really thought of that um, when I was putting together mine. So I like it. My number 10, I actually switching on the fly here uh, between my nine and 10. So my new number 10 is from Chamber of Secrets, chapter 18, Dobby's Reward. And even though I just kind of bashed Harry, I want to give him big props here because the fact that a 12-year-old thinks fast enough to take off his sock, wrap the riddle diary in the sock, give it to Malfoy, thinking that, oh, he'll discard the sock onto Dobby to allow him to be free in like 15 seconds worth of time (laughs) is very impressive. And when I was trying to come up with the list, like I never would have thought I would have this moment on the list. But then again, I started thinking about it a little more. I'm like, this is like the smartest thing I think Harry ever did in the entire series, considering his age and the circumstances. He had just gotten over this traumatic experience of killing a basilisk. And then all of a sudden he's thinking on his feet this fast is like, Oh, I know how to get Dobby free and tick off Malfoy. So I was just thinking over it in my head. I'm like, I'm going to put this on the list because it was very impressive. And it gave me an excuse to include a single moment from what is widely regarded as probably the worst entry, even though it's still great, even though it's still great. Chamber of Secrets still great, but that would be my number 10. Interesting. Let's see. My number nine comes from Half-Blood Prince, chapter 26. This is the scene where Harry and Dumbledore visit the cave that young Tom Riddle did creepy things to other kids in the orphanage and things that we were never privy to. But um, Dumbledore takes him here to find and destroy the Horcrux that he believes to be there. They go across the creepy lake full of dead and ferry. um, And then Dumbledore sacrifices himself to drink the potion. And he tells Harry because he knows that there's something, you know, it's not as simple as just being able to drink the potion. He knows that something's going to happen. So he tells him, whatever I do, whatever I say, make sure I keep drinking. So Harry does toward the end, and this is how the potion works. It makes you incredibly thirsty that you would be tempted to scoop a cup of water out of the lake. When you do so, it wakes up the inferi zombie-like creatures. And ultimately, that's probably how you die. Um, I think it's assumed that that's how Sirius's brother died when he did the same thing. So um, that's not the part of the scene. That's my favorite moment. My favorite moment is when Harry's doing this with Dumbledore. Um, Harry kind of gets pulled under the water because he's the one scooping out the water. And he sees from under the water Dumbledore, who's in a very weakened state, suddenly get this surge of energy to bust out this ring of fire to protect them. And to me, it's kind of that moment where 
you see your parent doing something that just make, you know, it, it kind of takes you out of place and realize, wow, that's how cool they used to be. Or that's the kind <laughs> of strength that they used to have. This is like a vintage Dumbledore moment. And we don't get too many of them. You know, we get a lot of Dumbledore is really wise. Dumbledore has kind of a, a little sense of humor. Dumbledore is very fatherly, but we don't see many moments where he exerts this kind of energy to be, you know, the only wizard that Voldemort's ever feared. Right. And so I think for me, it was just like, oh yeah, he's also a pretty amazing wizard. And obviously he's in a weakened state as well. So um, we, of course, we later find out that he is very weakened by that. And that kind of continues into what that next scene will be. But um, yeah, it's just a cool moment. Um, in the movie too, it's a cool moment. So just wanted to put yeah. that at number nine. That is, as far as chapters go, with the Potterheads, the cave chapter, as you mentioned, chapter 26 is very highly regarded across the landscape as one of the finest chapters of the series. So very appropriate that it would make your list. What is this landscape that you are referring to? (laughs) The, like you're the, the fandom, blogs or, okay, the fandom, <laughs> the, the Potter fandom, like people who rank the chapters, the cave is widely regarded as, as deserving of a very high ranking across all types of Harry Potter fans. Gotcha. I'm not so privy to these, to these little societies, but yeah. Um, my number nine, me being the sports fan that I am, a, a lot of people who enjoy Harry Potter actually dislike Quidditch or the the Quidditch because it's kind of this distraction and especially later on in the series it's so unimportant compared to the more important things going on in the Wizarding World like the battle against Voldemort but I can't describe the joy that I felt when Gryffindor finally won the Quidditch Cup in chapter 15 of the Prisoner of Azkaban it was just so joyful for me just because I love sports and I know how competitive I am and nothing has ever sounded as cool as the four houses competing against each other in a sport. That's one of the things I'm most envious of is that I didn't have this like inter-school competition that I got to participate in. It's not so much the magic as it is that just sounds like fun to me. But when Harry finally wins it and Wood, Oliver Wood is crying and uh, it's just a great scene and it hits on a lot of notes that I appreciate. And I don't know. It's just, it, just thinking about it now makes me smile. But it, And it's also fun that it's like this super high note before things get really, really serious in, in the series. Like by f- before this, yeah, technically he faced Voldemort in two different forms in one and two, but the real danger is coming. And this is kind of the last truly high note before that danger really starts. So yeah, that's my number nine. Yeah, I I didn't know that people didn't love Quidditch. I mean, Quidditch is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, Um, I mean, I don't have a ton of sources. I've just listened to some podcasts and I know that there's a opinion out there for, so it's probably the readership that's less inclined to appreciate sports because, you know, not everyone likes sports or watching sports or talking about sports. So there is 
a certain segment since Harry Potter connected with so many different kinds of people, there is a certain segment that they don't really care for sports. And so by extension, they don't really care about Quidditch, which is fine. I don't, for me, I really enjoyed that. And I, I was sad that they didn't play it in the fourth book, but anyway, not to, not to over uh, emphasize that point, but I personally enjoyed it very much. Yeah. All right. I'm a fan. (laughs) That's good. All right. Number eight. Number eight. So I'm curious if this is on your list because you kind of mentioned it, but um, my number eight is from Prisoner of Azkaban, chapter 21, when Harry has to cast his Patronus across the lake to save his past self. Um, This is, I mean, there's, this is the reason why book three is one of those, um, you know, Back to the Future and things like that. But I like the idea of your time traveled self has to somehow make a change that will impact what that next future will be. And so Harry making that realization, and this is kind of going back to what you said about with Dobby and the sock, but for someone who's 13 years old to have that realization, oh shoot, that was me that just saved me then. So I have to do it. It's just really, you know, it's just one of those cool moments. But um, I think too, it's, it's an interesting way to kind of show how Harry suddenly was able to master this spell. You know, he struggled with it throughout the entire book. The Dementors that we are introduced to in this book are, you know, he can't really handle them. He faints every time he sees them. And so Professor Lupin has been teaching him the Patronus spell. And so knowing that he had already done it because he saw himself do it, and that was enough to give him the strength to then perform it is just one of those weird circular things that I think is fun to think about. Um, and also like, just like one of those strange scenarios where he thought in his mind, oh, that looks like my dad, or I wonder if that's my dad. And then of course we know that it's not, but there is still that connection because his Patronus takes on the same shape, um, of his dad's. And so there is kind of that bond there that's developed. And I just think that's a really sweet, intimate moment. Yeah. That's certainly a time where my, Uh, Harry is mediocre theory goes to the wayside because he certainly steps up and does something that very few wizards would have been capable of doing according to you know what what the people in the book say and how many dementors there were because the it was almost a unnumberable amount of death eaters or not death eaters sorry dementors that were that were present when he he cast that particular Patronus so Certainly one of Harry's finest moments. My number eight is, I guess I kind of cheated and it's kind of the entire chapter, but I couldn't really pin it down to one single thing. But it's Deathly Hollows, book seven, chapter 35, King's Cross. Um, It's just a lot of reveals as well as this very interesting um, scene that has a lot of religious overtones, this kind of purgatory-ish area because Harry's like half dead and he can choose to go on if he wants is just very interesting in the way she uh, 
J.K. Rowling writes it, I thought was really interesting, as well as this very intimate, deep conversation that him and Dumbledore have to kind of summarize their friendship that had developed very incrementally over the seven books and and in this last you know conversation that he's technically having in his head um it was fascinating to see Dumbledore essentially fully fleshed out uh his flaws and his strengths as well as Harry coming to terms with what had yet to still need to be done as it concerned fighting Voldemort just and it tied up a lot of loose ends that were throughout book seven and the whole series in general and it it just I thought it was well done and kind of slightly abstract but not too abstract overall good very intriguing moment in the series for me yeah don't forget the creepy writing baby that's dying in the corner (laughs) yeah well obviously that is represents Voldemort's soul that is it can't be helped (laughs) right right yeah that that was kind of unfortunate but when the character is essentially evil incarnate you're not overly concerned about it yeah I was actually always curious about one part of that scene um you know Dumbledore suggests that the reason why Harry's only partially dead as you say is because he killed the part of him that was Voldemort or the, you know, the unintentional horcrux, if that's what we want to call it. But Harry doesn't know that going into it. He thinks that he has right. to die. Right. So I'm, I'm curious how much of that was necessary for him to even be able to get to that space, you know, with the, in- similar to what you just said about the mirror of um, Erised of having the intention, but, you know, he doesn't know the full story there. So walking into the forest, thinking he's just sacrificing his life right because i wonder if it would have worked the same if he knew if dumbledore told him well you're not going to really die it's okay well it was the horcrux as well as the fact that voldemort had some of harry's blood in him right so he was the dumbledore uses the phrase he was still tethered to life because he still had that Voldemort, someone still living, still had that blood in his veins. So that somehow kept Harry alive as well because they shared blood because he used Harry's blood to come back. Because that's why Voldemort has that flash in his eyes when they're talking about it in the Goblet of Fire. When Harry says that he used his blood to resurrect himself or he used my blood. This is Harry talking. He used my blood to resurrect him. And Dumbledore has this like flash in his eye that a lot of people speculate upon like, oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And then it essentially means since Dumbledore had the idea that the Horcruxes might exist long before book six, he realizes, oh, if Harry's a Horcrux, but he's still tethered to life through Voldemort sharing that blood, that means he can, the, the Horcrux in him can be killed and he can still somehow come back to life. Right. He may not have known exactly how it played out, but... <laughs> Yeah, just a lot of interesting stuff that gets revealed in King's Cross. So that's what yeah. I had it on. Cool. Number seven. All right. Um, my number seven, and I'm realizing now as I say this, that this person must be a favorite character of mine, but it's in <laughs> Deadly Hallows, Chapter 30. Harry and Ron and Hermione have just returned to Hogwarts, and 
Harry knows that he's looking for something from Ravenclaw, Luna tells him that, well, there is the lost diadem of Ravenclaw. And she takes him to, you know, to their common room in order to look at it. When he's there, the Caro um, siblings come to investigate and Harry's hiding under the invisibility cloak. But when Amicus Caro, I think, spits in McGonagall's face, out of pure disrespect, Harry gets so pissed off. He, um, I think he uses the Cruciatus curse and just, yep. you know, completely owns him, um, just in complete defense of Professor McGonagall. And again, it's just showing how this relationship has really evolved. One, love her as a character, but two, knowing that she really is someone who's on Harry's side and Harry has that allegiance toward her, you know, as brash as he can be sometimes. And, you know, he, that's kind of his own foolhardiness too, but he really just has this loyalty to the people that are in his life. And so I just thought that scene was really cool that he just kind of popped out like that. And it's also her realizing that he's back for the first time. And then that's, you know, of course, when they prepare the, the castle for the battle of Hogwarts and, um, yeah, it's, it's a fun scene. They do not have this scene in the movie. And I was remember being very disappointed by that because I was waiting for it. Yeah. The, Harry McGonagall relationship is awesome. It's just a very, cause you know, McGonagall super strict, hardly ever shows emotion. And when she does show emotion, you know, it really means something. And so you could tell, I forget the exact wording, but it's something along the lines of like, she was visibly touched by Harry stepping in and because he was like he shouldn't have done that professor or something and at first she's like potter what are you doing in the castle and then she just yeah that that was really awesome mcgonagall is pretty pretty awesome yeah she's essentially like the fourth most powerful witch wiz slash wizard in the series i would say fourth or mm, that sounds like a another day for another list <laughs> yeah that's true that's true <laughs> All right, my number seven. <laughs> this is probably the teenage, the teenage boy in me coming out. But I just remember the the triumph when I first read this moment. So if let me think, I was sixteen when I read this. Uh, Half Blood Prince, Chapter Twenty Four, Sectum Sempra. So Harry has to miss the Quidditch final because of detention because he almost kills Malfoy, which honestly should have gotten a lot more than detention, but he uh, was able to kind of hide the potions book. And anyway, then the, the, uh, the final, uh, the accumulation over the book of this pining for Ginny is finally comes to a head and, and, they win, they have won the Quidditch final and he's coming back to the common room and everyone's all happy and something, she, Rowling wrote something like the blaze in Ginny's eyes or something and then they kiss and it's just great. A, because we know that they end up getting married. So like, this is a very meaningful kiss because it's the first time they kiss. But B, it's just like this mix of euphoria. I mean, I always like when Grifter wins the Quidditch Cup. So there was that. And then Harry had been just, in complete knots over this situation that he had going with Ginny where he realizes he has feelings for her beyond platonic. And, you know, he never really had 
knew how to like act on them appropriately. And then she was dating other people. And I just, you know, being a high schooler and, and the guy getting the girl that, that was always kind of a very um, fist pump moment for me. Um, yeah. I mean, like even I said, from Ginny's standpoint too, she had been crushing on Harry for a long time. Right, right, right. I, yeah, I, yeah, that's true. I mean, hers, hers, her unrequited love was much longer than his. Uh, he just, but to be, I mean, Harry didn't know girls existed until like year five. Well, I guess year <laughs> four, I should say year four, but like the first three years. Yeah. He, he, I mean, I guess that's pretty on par for a regular timeline, but he, he had no inclination to pursue any sort of romantic interests in the first three years at all. So. Whereas Ginny was crushing on Harry when she was 10 and he was 11, which is kind of weird. No, I think that's, that's about right for a girl. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. They're ahead of the curve. Anyway. Yeah, and I, I think Rowling kind of, she has this extended metaphor about his, you know, liking for Ginny as like a, a beast or something like that within his heart. And he <laughs> the dragon. Yeah. Right, the dragon. And he could feel it getting kind of annoyed or angry when he saw Ginny kissing Dean Thomas or something yeah. like that. And at this scene, it was like complete just satisfaction. And I think thinking back to this chapter, there's that other line too about, oh shoot, what is Ron going to think? But Harry looks over at Ron and I right. think, I don't remember the exact words, but Rowling says Ron kind of gives him like a the shrug of like, well, if you must, you must. Yes. And so yes. I think that's yes. kind of cool too. Yeah, that's classic. It's well, and it's also hindsight. So we know that they end up being married and living this, you know, long life together. So if it had just been, you know, like his kiss with Cho, not nearly as memorable, you know, that's his first kiss. Um, but it doesn't nearly rank as highly on the list, obviously, as, as this, because this is pivotal for his, his life, you know. So that's why I have it on there. Okay. Um, we're on number six, right? Yep. Number six. Okay, my number six moment is from Order of the Phoenix, chapter 35. Um, this is when Harry and his friends determine that they are going to fly to the Ministry of Magic on Thestrals, no less, to break into the Department of Mysteries. Harry has this, um, you know, he's been having visions of Voldemort doing things throughout the book. And so he saw a scene of Sirius getting tortured, um, looking for the prophecy. And so they go to rescue him. Of course, we find out later that it's, you know, it's a foil and they are luring him there. But I love this moment because um, it's the first time you really get the gang together. You know, his friends are wanting to support him. They, they, you know, I think, was it Luna that had the idea of taking the Thestrals? And so um, they devise this plan of how to get there. They sacrifice their own lives. And I always think that, you know, aren't these just fifth year students? Are they really going to take on the Death Eaters? But of course, then the Order of the Phoenix, the older people in that group come to rescue them, which is kind of a second really cool scene. But, um, and they're all kind of fighting in the room with the veil. But um, yeah, it's just one of those call to arms kind of moments that gets you really amped up for, okay, we're, we're doing this, we're going to battle and we're really taking this on um, because of course no one has, this is when Voldemort is really starting to gather power. He's been embodied now 
from the last book. No one really believes him. So this is them facing off with him. Of course, we find out at the end of that book is when Cornelius Fudge finally admits that, oh, yeah, he's back. But um, up until now, it's been this this rumor or whatever it is. So this is Harry and his friends standing behind him, willing to die for him, even though it ends up kind of being a trap. Yeah, that's, I never really thought of that moment that way. Uh, I liked your explanation. I did. One of the things that popped in my head when you were mentioning it and discussing it was the fact that a lot of the people who traveled in that group couldn't see the Thestrals and they were riding on them, even though they couldn't see them. Right. <laughs> and I think it's like Ron and Hermione are both, this is the strangest thing or something along those lines. And that kind of added some brevity to the very intense moment that it was. Yeah. It's only Harry and Luna that are able to see them. Because they're the only ones. I don't think, did they say that? Because Neville, his parents didn't die. It was his grandfather. His grandfather. Okay. Well, there you go. So yeah, three of the, how many was it? Luna, Ginny, Hermione, Ron, Harry. I guess, was there seven or eight? Seven. That was all of them. Yeah, I wasn't counting. Six? (laughs) Harry, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Luna, Neville. Okay, so there's only six. So half of them. Yeah, that's cool. I like that one. My number six is, once again, I mean, yeah, I haven't heard, I haven't done like a very in-depth analysis of all the different Harry Potter fandom outlets, but I'm pretty sure that this, chapter ranks very highly in a lot of people's minds it's from deathly hollows chapter 33 the prince's tale and i mean it's on the list because of how pivotal it is to the full cycle of of the series and the ultimate good or bad character reveal and we find out snape is i'm not going to go so far as to say good but he sided with the good people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway it they a lot of people call it a master class of storytelling of how she explained she being rolling obviously explained the the backstory with the memories in the pensive and did it in such a way where she was or harry is flashing back to these different moments in time and we get these fully fleshed out backstories of various characters such as Lily, such as Snape, such as heck even Petunia. And she's not even in that many of the memories. And I mean, what is there to say besides the fact that it's one of the most pivotal moments in the series, even though it comes towards the very end when it feels like every moment was very pivotal, just a brilliant writing on Rawlings part. And I mean, it's always nice that the person ended up being on the good side. So uh, it was nice that, that Snape was on the, the good side of the fight. Yeah, I mean, what's so impressive about that too is her ability to have kept the storyline straight and consistent across the series because, yeah, to your point, it even dips back into things from, you know, books, several books back. And so being able to tie it up really nicely into one, yeah, I guess we're calling it a, a masterclass of storytelling, so... 
I, I got to give her props where they're due. Got to come up with goofy terms to acknowledge greatness. <laughs> All right, number five, we are in the uh, upper half of the list now. All right, these are getting really hard to number, I think, right, at this point. Right. <laughs> um, okay, this is such a small, weird moment, and I'm not – I can't even understand why it's so high on my list, but I, I just remember <laughs> I just remember feeling very affected by this when I read it. So it's from Deathly Hollows, chapter 10. Um, it's taking it takes place at 12 Grimold Place, and Harry goes into Sirius's old bedroom. Number one, I think that alone is just something that feels very like, I don't know, special. You're going into I think for any of us, when we find something of our parents that's, you know, from when they were a teenager or something like that, it feels like, oh, wow, this was you back then before I knew you and things like that. But at this point, Sirius obviously has since passed. And so it, it feels like a sacred moment in some ways. But he finds um, a letter written to Sirius from his mom. And it's dated really close to the time that they were, you know, eventually murdered. And so, I don't know, there's something just very... Um, I think I, I just said the word sacred, but there's just something so intimate about that. Um, it gives Harry almost a vision of what life could have been or should have been. I think right. she's, she's thanking him for gifting him with like little baby Harry with a little toy broomstick, which is funny because we know that Sirius also gives him with the firebolt um, much later on. So, um, I don't know, to me, it kind of, I know that Harry never really gets closure about Sirius's death, but it kind of reminds him about that love. Again, going back to the mirror, it's, it's his parents' love that was there. And it is something that he most desires. It, this window into the past of like, that's what happiness was when my parents were happy together. Um, I had this godfather, Sirius Black, and, you know, so... It's just something special there. I also just like the scenes that happen in Grimmauld Place, which I don't know if any everyone would agree with. I know those are also scenes where people think that Harry is super moody and annoying, but I think I just like the idea of the Order all kind of living in this space together, like they're in this weird dorm kind of scenario, and it just feels like a strange little family. And as a reader, you just so wish that for Harry and he knows that it's never going to really happen, but he, he wishes it too. And so, I don't know, in this moment, I think he indulges that wish a little bit by allowing himself to feel that kind of connection is serious. Yeah. It's interesting. Not, I'm not trying to contradict anything that you said, but it's interesting that you mentioned that scene and then, um, define the connection between Sirius and Harry because I always felt that that was more about Harry and Lily because she's the one who wrote the letter that is the focus of when he, he goes into Sirius's bedroom and then uh, he can't find the the signature because Snape, we don't know this yet, but Snape had, had torn it off and, and taken it with him because it said something like, with love, Lily. Right. Um, so that's interesting. I, I never, I guess I hadn't really thought of it that way. I do remember Harry kind of getting a chuckle out of how Sirius had kind of decorated his room like a muggle with some uh, bikini clad muggle girls, I think was the term <laughs> used. But 
that's very interesting. I like that. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's the connection to his mom. It's like her handwriting, and that's something really special for Harry. But and I guess Sirius has always been a father-like figure to him. So maybe I'm putting them in a similar space in his heart of his parents, his godfather, even maybe Lupin are all kind of in this parental sphere for him. But yeah, I, I think walking into his old bedroom is just kind of like a weird, cool thing. I agree. It's very academic English terms for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. My number five is you mentioned it, but I kind of had a different focus. Uh, it's from Half-Blood Prince, book six, chapter 26, The Cave. And I agree with your assessment of seeing Dumbledore with like full power. You see him making this extensive network of fire to protect him and Harry. And just that whole chapter is awesome as far as the suspense, the intrigue, the what's going to happen aspects. And then what really hammered it home for me is the last few sentences of the chapter where Harry's frantic and trying to frantically get Dumbledore back to Hogwarts. And he's like, sir, don't worry, sir. I I got you. Uh, We'll get back together. And Dumbledore says, I'm not worried, Harry. I'm with you. Mm. And that was always really amazing um, storytelling to me because Dumbledore is obviously someone who he's the, he's the most powerful wizard in the series, essentially. And he's far superior to Harry as far as academic wizard and wand work and all that kind of stuff. But for him to say he's not worried because he's with Harry is like the pinnacle of their relationship while they're both still alive. Because after this, they don't get to talk anymore because Dumbledore petrifies Harry and and then he's talking to Malfoy and Snape. And it's it's essentially like the one of the last things Dumbledore gets to say to Harry, and it's it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful sentiment, and it's a very interesting role reversal where Harry is now the protector of Dumbledore, even though Dumbledore is the one who just fought off all the inferior. Um, and and just the cave overall is fantastic. But that that quote really uh, was like a arrow to the heart when I was reading it, and then and then and then of course this is you know a few pages before Dumbledore dies. I don't know why I'm laughing about it, but a few pages before. So it's even more sacred for lack of a better word, uh, what he says. So that was my number five. Yeah. I totally forgot about that as the last line of that chapter. And yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's almost eerie how foretelling it kind of is too. Cause like you said, we know that the next scene is Dumbledore's death, but just kind of, that acknowledgement of in his last words of wisdom to Harry, it's letting him know that like, I'm with you and you can do this. So I think that's, yeah. If we all had a teacher like that, I think the world would be a better place. (laughs) All right. Number four, what do you got? All righty. Number four um, is from Deathly Hallows, chapter 36. This is just the final duel between Harry and Voldemort. 
it's, it's high on my list because obviously it's the conclusion of what we've all been waiting for. It's not number one because I think I was just a little let down that it was almost just a read. Harry's much more in his element here and he feels more confident and he, he knows something that Voldemort doesn't know and he knows that that's what's going to keep him alive a little bit longer by almost taunting him with that. Like, you know, yeah. um, what do you he know does, about this other does, wand? He does taunt him quite a bit in this scene. Harry <laughs> does his signature Expelliarmus, the beam of light, and then that's just kind of how it ends. So, I don't know. I think that's that's the only reason why I was slightly let down by this scene, but nonetheless, it's it's obviously a, the conclusion of this and follows shortly after um, the duel between Molly Weasley and Bellatrix Lestrange, which is also Epic. a surprising finale for that one. Who, If you had told me or asked me from, I think Lestrange is introduced in book three, if you had asked me who I thought would vanquish her i wouldn't have never told you molly weasley but (laughs) maybe that goes to what i was saying earlier about when you see your parent kind of bust out this old you know form of strength that you would think is behind them is seeing this woman who knits sweaters and such you know stuff like that well it's a it's a mother protecting her only daughter a mother protecting her only daughter after six sons some of which are incredibly annoying to a mother right and she just lost one of her sons so she's she's pissed (laughs) (laughs) yeah that uh i can't argue with the final epic well i guess the duel itself isn't all that epic but the the final confrontation between good and evil is is very good my number four is also from deathly hollows chapter 34 the forest again and i guess it's essentially the entire chapter but what really stood out to me is the fact that there is very little to do with magic like if you if magic didn't exist in this series this chapter would essentially go unchanged except for the end of it which i'll explain in a second but it's it's harry coming out of the pensive after the prince's tale and realizing he has to die because he saw the conversation between Snape and Dumbledore saying he's a Horcrux and he needs to die. And Snape is appalled to know that Harry has been raised like a pig for slaughter. And then Harry begins this very philosophical struggle in his mind about how beautiful life is and how precious it is and how he has X number of breaths left until he's going to have to die. And he just, he starts feeling like the blood pulsing through his veins. And it's essentially an homage to the miracle that is life. And then the other thing is, is in this series, Rowling admits that like the main themes are love and death. And this is kind of the intersection of those things there's so much love and sacrifice that has gone into this narrative. And up until this point, other people have died for Harry and he always uh, kind of ponders on that in, in his uh, inner monologue that we get to see a lot. He's always thinking about all the people who had to sacrifice themselves for him. 
And now he's the one who's making the ultimate sacrifice because those people didn't necessarily know they were going to die. Like they knew they were entering into a very dangerous situation, but he is literally marching to his death. And then of course you have the uh, Christ metaphors because it's very similar to Jesus Christ marching to his death. He, He knew he had to die. And so you have Harry now knowing in order to save these people, he has to give up his life and he has to do so essentially willingly because he has to, he has to let Voldemort do it. He has to let Voldemort be the one to kill him. So he has to kind of do it. It can't be in the heat of battle and it happened to be, you know, uh, Dolohoff kill him or something. It has to be, it has to be Voldemort. And so as he's going to the forest, it's just the stuff, the, the writing of Rawling is just unbelievable. I don't, I don't really know how to explain it. I just suggest people go back and read the chapter and just um, incredible. And then at the end of the chapter is when the, the magic comes in, but it's also very touching is when he realizes. And I, I kind of knew that this is what it meant when he first saw the message on, on the snitch. I open at the close. I kind of thought in my head, oh, that means it's like when someone's going to die, it's going to open. And so, of course, he says, I know I'm going to die. And so the snitch opens, and then he's able to see his loved ones in the form of this corporeal, vaporish state. Uh, But he gets to see, you know, Lupin, who had just died, and Sirius and his parents. And, I mean... I don't know. I mean, it's number four. I'm now talking about it. I'm surprised it's not number one, but it was just incredible, incredible chapter. Yeah, I definitely thank you for going through that. I kind of forgot about all of those really visceral descriptions and just that the pace at which he's now walking to his death and just the the knowledge of all that. And I do like remember myself sobbing through this chapter and <laughs> reading it really slowly because it's almost Harry guiding us into this, this ritual of taking it little by little because we know it's about to end soon. And I don't know, it's cherishing the very last chapters of a series that you've been reading for 10 years. And so as he's walking, it it does feel like a death in so many ways. Um, So yeah, I, I agree with you there. Good moment. All right, number three, the top three, the metal stand. Alrighty, my number three is Deathly Hallows, chapter four. So this is towards the beginning of the book, and it's when the seven Potters are flying to move Harry from the Dursleys to his safe house. Um, it's it's kind of a comical scene, honestly, but. And I think there's maybe a theme in a lot of these moments that I'm choosing, but the idea of all these people in his life, and they're not, to me, it wasn't everyone that I would have expected. There are a total of 14 people that are going on this trip. Um, But it's just these people that have elected themselves to risk their lives to protect Harry, you know, and protect this larger cause that they're all about. And so that's definitely a touching moment. I think, again, it's rolling using her ability to weave humor into these otherwise very dark scenarios. So you have the scene of them all taking polyjuice potion. I think Hermione says, Oh, like here, you taste so much better than 
Crabbe and Goyle did and stuff like that. Right. But and you watch them transform. I think Floor is upset that she's going to look ugly or hideous <laughs> in front of um, her husband. Hideous. So right, I look hideous. <laughs> so it's I don't know. I, it's a fun scene. It's a cool scene. Um, I think it again to your point of what you just said. It's Harry getting upset that all these people would be willing to sacrifice themselves and. And I think they constantly remind him like, yes, we're sacrificing for you, but it's also like bigger than you and it's bigger than us. And we're willing to die for that cause. Um, it's something that just to go back to what you just said about the resurrection stone, it's what Lupin kind of reminds him of when Harry said, I'm so sorry, you just had a son. And he's like, I'm trying to give him a better world to live in. And that's, that's really what it's all about. Yes. Harry's very key in that, but you know, these are the good people fighting for good. Um, and, and again, it is sad, like as much as we hated the Dursleys and Harry having to live in that house, this is him finally leaving it, you know, at the, the stroke of midnight as he turns 17 and the, the curse or the protection is kind of broken. There's something that's being left behind there. And so there, there's a sense of weight to that, of never going back to a place again, I think is always a chilling thought to think that this is the last time I'll have to be here. So, yep, that is my number three. Yeah, that's a really good one. And just the sheer how she continues, she being Rowling, continues to tie back stuff to make the stories more interesting. So she brings in Polyjuice Potion a lot after it's introduced in, in book two, obviously. But this is just a fantastic use of that magical entity. Um, you know, you, you would never... It never occurred to me that there would ever be like seven of a person simultaneously. <laughs> so that was always really cool. And I will say that I did appreciate the cinematic interpretation of this scene. I thought they did a good job with that. And probably Daniel Radcliffe's finest acting moment in the series was when he had to do all the different uh, variations of himself playing someone who is pretending to be Harry. Right, right. But yeah, that's a really good one. My number three is from Order of the Phoenix, chapter 36. You kind of touched on this because uh, you had something in the chapter before, but or a few chapters before. The only one he ever feared, the epic... Dumbledore versus Voldemort duel. So this is the only time we ever get to see them duel with wands, essentially. Uh, the two most powerful wizards in the series, one would prob most folks would probably say. And I mean, it's just, it's your arch archetype good versus evil battle. Uh, it echoes back to the lightsaber duels of Star Wars. It's it's just cool. There's no other way around it besides like, and then the chapter art just immediately you see that chapter art and you're like, it is on, this is going to be awesome. And I remember reading that chapter and just my face melting at how cool it was. <laughs> and just, I don't know. It's just cool. It's just good versus evil. And then it's not, it's not this abstract, concepts where harry defeats someone with love it's just straight up we're dueling i don't know there's something appealing to that to me maybe that's too uh kind of cheesy but at the same time it was 
I, I remember reading that for the first time thinking like, this is so cool. And of course it's awesome that Dumbledore technically wins, um, proving himself to be superior to Tom. You should not have come here tonight, Tom. The Aurors <laughs> will be here soon. All right. Number yeah, and, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say, I reminded me that he would just call him by his... Right. You know, he would just call him Tom because, hey, that's your name. And I knew you when you were a child and plucked you from the muggle world. And I think that always just infuriated Voldemort. Like, oh, yeah. He you know, hated it. I have he a new name it. now. And... You know, and of course we we learn that Tom is the name of his father, who he obviously despised and right. murdered, and all that good stuff. So, for sure. All right, number two. Okay, my number two is from Deathly Hallows. I think all these, all my last ones are from Deathly Hallows, uh, chapter twenty nine. Uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are entering from the hogshead into the room of requirement. Um, I Another moment I had was just after this one, but this is their first time coming back to the castle, this entire book. And for me, one, it was, I was excited for them to come back to the castle. I think I was getting tired of them traipsing through the woods from one spot <laughs> to another. I understanding that this times have changed significantly and priorities have shifted, but I did find myself longing for that, you know, sense of normalcy that comes with the, the seasons of being at school and the Quidditch World Cup, as we mentioned before, and, or sorry, the Quidditch, the House Cup. And, um, you know, so for them to come back to Hogwarts, I felt like, well, this is a familiar place. Um, and just being able to have that final scene in the room of requirement is cool. I think the idea of this room is so creative and fun. Um, I love that it becomes whatever you need it to become. And I think in this scene, they kind of mention how you can put parameters on the room to ensure that it serves exactly the purpose it needs to serve and nothing else. Because, you know, we know that when Dumbledore's army was practicing in the room, the, what is it, the Inquisitor squad or whatever it is with Umbridge finds a way to break in because they know that they're using the room. Right. But Neville was able to erect these rules that we are hiding out here, but other people who are not welcome can't can't see it. Or I don't know. There's all these different things he puts up. So coming to the room of requirement, they are seeing their friends again for the first time. Um, their friends are seeing them for the first time. And here's Harry finally after this entire year of this must be you know, this weird season at Hogwarts for them being under Snape and the Caros. So it's just, again, I think it's Rowling's ability to inject moments of lightness and almost jubilation into this tapestry of darkness. You know, there's death on either sides of this scene, but it's their ability to, hey, let's also just be a bunch of 17 year olds for a second and enjoy the the you know being able to come together before we go off to battle so right and i think too it's also showing how much neville specifically as a character has evolved over the books he's kind of just this leader of this you know rogue underground group he's terrorizing the caros and he's the one that guides them in which i think is really cool 
because we see that reversal from when he was, you know, bumbling Neville that was afraid that he was a squib and following them around. And now he's kind of taking charge. And of course we kind of see later on how he really plays a role in the whole scheme of things. But um, yeah, so I think it's just, they're grown up a little bit, but we still, we get to see them be kids too, in a way. Yeah. The one thing that sticks out to me from that scene is I always found it kind of weird when they were like, yeah, and when uh, more girls started coming in, uh, bathrooms started appearing. And I was like, wait, so the guys, the guys who were camping out there didn't need the bathrooms? I thought that that was kind of peculiar. Um, mm. But like, as more people came in, more hammocks would appear. So it was funny to me that, that uh, they were implying like, oh, before when it was just three dudes, they didn't need a bathroom. Like, I feel like they still needed a bathroom. Um, but yeah, that's maybe there was just a urinal against the wall, <laughs> but it was the girls that needed the privacy. I don't know. Well, you know that there's this thing before they installed the bathrooms in Hogwarts, in like it was like the 16 or 1700s or whenever it was, maybe even later, because I guess indoor plumbing wasn't around till later but they would just um uh relieve themselves and then vanish it was the wizard approach to (laughs) sanitation i found that interesting um that's i think from something on pottermore or something but a lot of Mm. people have uh found that to be uh peculiar for lack of a better word but sorry Good pick. I like it. Deathly Hollows. Yeah, it's hard to not have several picks from Deathly Hollows in just because it's it's the final book and it was just so well done. Um although I say that and neither of my top two are from Deathly Hollows. Um my my number two is from Yeah. Uh well they're very similar, my last two. Um, and you'll see what I mean once I say them both. But so my number two is from Prisoner of Azkaban, chapter 19. And it's essentially the whole chapter. Um, it's the servant of Lord Voldemort, and it's the true reveal that this whole time and and it, it you never what 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 I love so much about the reveal is that it is completely plausible but you never could have guessed it before she reveals it. Hmm. Like it's one thing to have a deus ex machina in, in, in a book where you're like, Oh, this is how the problem is solved or how the the story is closing. And it, it makes no sense. The solution comes out of nowhere, but this is brilliant. Like all of a sudden scabbers who you didn't give a second thought to, during the first two books and then in the third he becomes involved with crookshanks and all that so he's a little bit more in the spotlight but all of a sudden scabbers is an animagus and it's peter pettigrew and the guy who we thought was the villain for this entire book is not the villain in fact it's the only living family that harry has left and it was just fantastic well done 
maybe maybe it's because I'm simple minded when I'm reading a book, but I I never would have seen that coming. And the fact that this person who Harry admitted to wanting to kill halfway through the book is now like his dearest, the dearest person to him in the entire world. Now he doesn't mm-hmm. develop those feelings right away, but almost immediately after all this goes down, Sirius is like, Oh yeah, come live with me. And that's like the happiest Harry has ever been up to this point in the series is when Sirius says that. Cause he's like, I get to get away from the Dursleys. This is awesome. Before of course it gets ruined by the subsequent actions of the, of the rest of that book. But I always thought that that uh, switcheroo was, was fantastic uh, between Pettigrew and, and black. And then of course it sets up number four because Pettigrew escapes, but. Yeah. Is it also that same chapter where we learn who the identities of Padfoot, Prongs, Horntail, Mooney? That's I think the chapter before. Okay. Because that, that, that chapter is called, uh, what is, I forget the order, uh, Padfoot and Prongs. Wormtail, Mooney, Padfoot, and Prongs is the, the order that they list as the chapter title for the chapter before it. Right. And that's right, where we right. learn that Lupin's a werewolf. Yeah. Yeah, Which a lot of reveals awesome. in that moment, I guess, yeah. now that I think about it. Um, and yeah, Lupin and Sirius become two important characters throughout the rest of the series. I mean, I right. guess so does Wormtail. So, um, but yeah, definitely picking up on what you're saying there about, I think a lot of times in a series, the villain is introduced. It would have been easy for her to have said that Sirius was the villain, that that's what this book is about. It's called The Prisoner of Azkaban. He's coming to look for Harry and things like that. But to have it be planted in a character that had been with us this whole time. And I don't, I don't remember exactly if Scabbers dates back to book one. Yep. Do you, okay. He bites, so, he bites Goyle on the finger in the, in the train on the way okay. there. So then she's kept this secret in her pocket for this long already, which to me is just kind of amazing too. And again, the idea of the timelines that she's constructed and deciding at what point is appropriate to, you know, reveal certain details to let this character meet that character, things like that is just amazing and requires a ton of foresight, a ton of planning, a lot of patience, I think. So yeah, I think that's good. I also think it's funny that Crookshanks, um, cause I think this is around the time that people were wondering if Crookshanks was an animagus as well. Like she seems sentient in some ways. She's not, um, she's a different breed of cat and measle, I think is what they're yeah, called. Yeah, half, half measle, yeah. Right. But it's funny when you see like these moments where Crookshanks and who we learn later is Sirius having these little like conversations yeah. almost. Yeah. They came out of the forest together and you're like, what is going on? Yeah, they're, so they're just like chatting it up animal about, style. Right. So when Sirius is in his, you know, transfigured form, it's like, what is that conversation that's going on? <laughs> Got to get that rat. Yeah, and then they're still like good friends even after he's in human form. Yeah. Which is interesting. Okay, the moment has arrived. What is your number one favorite moment from the Harry Potter series? Well, you have already listed this. I think it was around five or six or so, but it's the moment when Harry is watching Snape's memories in the Pensieve. Um, 
for all the reasons you already said about how this really just ties up a lot of loose ends for the entire series, really, um, for a lot of the characters, it's the redeeming quality for Snape. Um, it answers the question really of whether he was truly bad or truly good. And maybe that, maybe that doesn't really answer it in itself, but he was fighting for good, as you said. Um, I think the specific moment that I would pull out, and I hate that this is the reason, the moment when Dumbledore asks him, you know, after all this time, as if, is it really just because you loved this woman so much and so completely that you would shift your whole course of the rest of your life to avenge her death? And he says, always, after he, you know, casts his Patronus, revealing it as a doe for Lily Potter. And, you know, that that kind of love is almost this, it's a strange type of unrequited love because of course we see in the memories that they really kind of went their separate ways. Snape started hanging out with, you know, the Death Eater crowd at school. <laughs> um, Lily, of course, kind of went with James and his friends, but the love that he had for her and really the infatuation just went so deep to as to change his heart over when he found that Voldemort was going to kill her. And so, um, yeah, I think that moment just always stuck with me. I think we t we've been talking a lot about how there's a sense of your inner desire and your inner intentions that magic kind of has a interplay with. And the fact that your Patronus is kind of this animal, you know, it's the expression of kind of your spirit in animal form. The fact that his became a doe is just kind of the true reflection of his heart. And so, um, and again, I don't think it's a mistake that his, is a doe and Harry's is the stag. And there, of course, there's just kind of that connection there. So um, yeah, I loved how that scene played out. And that's why it's my number one. Yeah, I mean, I obviously already talked about it, but it's it's very good. Um, and yes, the always, one of the uh, things that have entered in the Harry Potter fandom for tattoos. A lot of people get get always tattooed. Because um, the sentiment there is very uh, deep as well. Um, and like you said, it's very, the unrequited love is very fascinating. He, yeah, like you said, he essentially puts himself in mortal peril for the rest of his life to dedicate his every waking minute to keeping the progeny of his crush slash love who never responded in that way, who he hurled insults at, uh, at one point in time alive. It's, it's just weird, but it's also beautiful for lack of a better word that he, he, he did what he did. Yeah, it's it's something that I I can't honestly I can't really understand because I think it would have been it would have even been enough if if it was the death of a loved one and now you are acting you know in vengeance of their memory or something like that. But to your point, she had never returned that. In fact, towards the end, they were not even friends. They had gone. They had chosen right. different paths, and so for him to act that way, I think, and that's why Dumbledore even asks this question, like wow, that, that is still your driving force, isn't it? And after all this time, after all we've been through, after having 
developed her own, you know, quote unquote relationship with Harry, it's still just about Lily, huh? And he says, yes, always. And I don't know, there's something so, there's a lot of meaning packed into just that one simple word. And And I mean, as cliche as it is, it's a great example of love triumphing, being the stronger emotion when compared to hate. Like he loved someone so much that despite the fact that he hated the person who she fell in love with and who had a child with, and he hates the child as well, he's still willing to risk his life to keep the child alive and to do whatever is necessary to keep him alive to allow him to succeed in the mission that he has essentially been bequeathed due to a prophecy. Uh, And that is far stronger than the emotions of Voldemort and his prevailing motivation, which is his hatred of death. And so Snape's love of Lily, you know, outperforms Voldemort's hatred of death and hatred of, I guess, uh, diversity. I don't know. He, he hates a lot of things. All right. So my number one, very similar to my number two. Um, but it, uh, I was just so blown away when first reading this that, and it still sticks with me to this day. Goblet of Fire, chapter 35, Veritaserum. The, essentially the explanation behind all the weird things that have been going on in the book and the fact that Barty Crouch Jr. had been taking Polyjuice Potion and impersonating Moody the entire year. It, it was, I, I can't begin to describe how blown away I was as a, what, 12, 12-year-old? Yeah, 12-year-old reading this. I was fascinated it was unbelievable ability to storytell within the realm of plausibility it goes back to what i was saying about prisoner of azkaban is that it's something you never would have guessed but it fit all the pieces fit perfectly because a we're led to believe barty crouch jr dies but then we get this very plausible explanation as to how it appeared he died, but he didn't because his mom switched places with him, took polyjuice potion, and then lasted long enough to die. And then the Dementors didn't care. They, they knew it was just a dead body. They, they don't recognize, you know, individuals. And then just intertwining all the weird things that have been going on, Winkies weird behavior at the Quidditch World Cup then becomes explained. The person who did the dark mark was Crouch Jr. Uh, And then this dark, I mean, it's very dark, but the explanation of Barty Crouch Sr. going mad in the woods and Harry encountering him and then no one being able to find him afterwards, it's because Barty Crouch Jr. went in and killed his own dad, but Turned his body into a bone. (laughs) Right, right. Very depressing, very dark. But just these layers. And then then Harry sees Barty Crouch on the Marauder's map. And granted, uh, you'd think that it would show up as junior and senior there. uh, Just because of how detailed the magic is with the Marauder's map with everything else. But it's still within the realm of plausibility that 
he sees Barty Crouch, assumes it's Senior because Junior's supposed to be dead, but lo and behold, it's Junior impersonating Moody because the map doesn't lie. Just incredible. Incredible storytelling, incredible twists, and within the realm of the world. Like, it's contained within the world, and it makes sense once it's explained. And it could have been right in front of your face, but you never would have guessed it. And uh, Goblet of Fire is just really, really good. And it's also the beginning of the, the true second war. And uh, I guess it's, it's, a, it's depressing and sad, but I guess it's more my tribute to Rawlings' abilities and just the ability of the Harry Potter series to suck me in and, and make me surprised and in awe is essentially why it's number one. Yeah, that's it's a very interesting deduction of why that's your number one. I always, I think too, when I think about that scene or just like you said, the climax of that book, when you think back to all of the moments that we had from Moody that we now learn is Barty Crouch Jr. And like you said, it all just fits. The, the actions that he did, the the little hints that he tried to drop. He did so much work and you, you know, you got to hand it to him. He's this completely evil character, but he did a ton of work. Um, and you do have to marvel at, you know, something as simple as trying to give Neville and a book, an herbology book, because he thought that maybe he would share with Harry how to swim in the lake, you know, little tiny things like that, how he had to make it, had to help Harry, but not too much that it was obvious is just, what people's natural behaviors would be to then play out on its own. Like setting the chessboard for, so the game could play out was masterful on his part just as a villain. And even too, being able to pull off the fact that he was this world famous horror. Um, I think maybe there's just a talent there of his being able to read the signs, read other people's body language to adapt and take on their mannerisms or whatever. Cause it, there's no indication that anyone felt, Hmm, that's not something that Moody would say or anything like that. Right. Um, the one thing that I always felt cheated on from after this reveal is the fact that we never really get to know the real Mad-Eye. And then of course he dies towards the end of the series. So it, it is just a strange thing. And I think Harry even has this mention too of, oh, this guy that I've like confided in in some ways and had this building relationship with is not the person I thought he was. Um, and so when he sees him again for the first time as the real Mad-Eye, it's just like, it's awkward and kind of strange. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of interesting s- stuff to unpack in that. Yeah, you, you talking about the chess pieces that he was moving around. I forgot to mention all that, but yeah, he was constantly essentially pushing Harry in the direction of getting to the middle of that maze. But it reminded me of one other fantastic little turn of phrase that Rawling used. Mad-Eye and Harry run into each other at night in the corridors, and this is uh, Crouch impersonating Mad-Eye, but we think it's Mad-Eye, and he says, the one thing I could never or the one thing I hate most, I forget the exact words, but he's like, the one thing I hate most is a death eater who ran free. And you think it's, oh, it's Mad-Eye the Auror who wants to imprison all of the death eaters. But really what it's saying is 
it's Barty Crouch Jr. being ticked off at all of the Death Eaters who fled when the Dark Lord was taken down and and not imprisoned in Azkaban like he was. And it that's just, oh my gosh, that was so amazing uh, at, to, to think back at and be like, she planted these hints in there, but you never – they were hints, but at the same time, they were just hints that were covered. You you never would have thought of it. Yeah, just- it's it's kind of like that reverse reverse psychology kind of thing. I think that's a really deep cut. I don't even really remember that. Um, the one that I think about is when Harry's name gets put in the goblet, and you know the professors are kind of coming together to figure out what to do, and Karkaroff kind of confronts Maddie, or I think Maddie kind of proposes it could have been this, it could have been this, and Karkaroff says, oh sounds like something, you know, the work of dark magic or something like that. And he's kind of saying, well, I have to think that way. And it's revealed to us later on that the real Mad-Eye is the one who caught Karkaroff, the Death Eater. Right. So again, it's another display of his restraint, knowing that he's this character facing off against this guy and he has to put on the semblance of the person he's impersonating without divulging too much about his true feelings. But again, dropping his little hints like, yeah, it would take a really conniving person to figure out how to put it in the fire when he was the one who did it. But because of the way he said it, you know. And and simultaneously, Barty Crouch Jr. has to contain himself in that moment because Karkaroff is exactly the kind of person he hates because Karkaroff sold, sold out a bunch of Death Eaters to escape Azkaban. So that's like the number one kind of person at the top of his enemy list. I mean, obviously, Barty Crouch Jr. was a psychopath, but he was also a very skilled psychopath in imitating and maintaining character for, you know, nine months or however long it was. Yeah. Well, we have come to the end of the list. Uh, We've definitely talked for a very long time, but (laughs) I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, I hope our listeners do as well. Do you have any last comments or Anything you want to add just in general about Harry Potter? Uh, No, I mean, nothing super enlightening. I I do, I appreciate this little exercise. I think it was a fun way to, for me to divulge myself and, you know, dip back into those moments and what they meant to me at the time. Like, I think like you, I can imagine exactly where I was when I read this passage or what was going on. How old was I? Things like that. And so it was a special way for me to kind of recount those moments. And I don't get to do it with too many people because not everyone has the memory that you do for these types of things. <laughs> I think I brought up some of these thoughts with David and he just didn't remember them at all. So I it's said, not, you know, I'll wait till I tar- talk to Mark. <laughs> it's not so much memory as it is if you read the, the books enough times, you know, uh, if only I studied more important texts as often as I have read Harry Potter, then I would be um, perhaps better off in uh, a variety of disciplines as opposed to just uh, this juvenile fiction. Then well, again, the, don't the sell themes, yourself short. Yeah, the, the themes. themes. The themes are very important and very pertinent. And I will still, I still go to battle with various people that I've encountered who will say, you know, will poo-poo, for lack of a better term, Harry Potter, and I'll try and tell them that there's a lot of very important uh, Christian metaphors in there that 
I think are very prominent if you are digging deep enough and are looking for them. But yeah, I appreciate the, uh, the, the memory compliment. I, I do think I, I, I've read or listened. I have listened to the audiobooks a fair number of times as well. So uh, a lot of things have certainly stuck in my head and it's just, I, it's just great. I think it's timeless too. I pick up new things when I listen or read them again every time. And it's gotten this second life with the Fantastic Beast series coming out. And now people who are like 20, 20 years, our juniors are, are being introduced to it and are like Harry Potter fans. And now granted some of that's film related which is unfortunate because they are far inferior to the books but agreed <laughs> like I have little nieces who are big into Harry Potter and it's just it's fascinating to me that now it's kind of come full circle and back around I mean it'll be like it it'll go down like Lord of the Rings where it's I mean Lord of the Rings is coming up on 90 100 years old now and it's still very prevalent in people who consume fiction. Yeah, it has transcended just the realms of literature for sure. I mean, there's there are theme parks. <laughs> this is true. There are indeed multiple theme parks. Well, Tracy, I, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed getting your perspective. I think your list was fascinating because it really, I think I took on more of like the grandiose uh, themes and you you found these subtleties that are really special which are probably even more impressive and more to Rawlings credit are these little little subtleties that everyone can kind of identify with uh appreciate you coming on I hope you had fun yeah I really did thanks for having me no problem I want to say thank you to Tracy for joining the podcast and it was a lot of fun going over our top 10 list I hope everyone enjoyed that. And now is time for a review. So this week I'm going to be reviewing a board game. It's a board game called Azul. It's a two to four player game. And I really got into board games around the time that Hannah was expected to arrive. So it was kind of poor timing because Emily and I lost the ability to play a game with each other whenever we felt like it. Additionally, a lot of the games sometimes require more players, like four or six, but this has led me to gravitate towards games that can be played with two players. So I got Azul for Emily for our fifth anniversary, and we actually didn't play it for probably a year, and then we finally got around to playing it, and it was somewhat recently, I think around right before or the beginning of when social distancing started but it's a really good game i really enjoy it it's pretty highly rated by a lot of board game outlets such as uh board game geek anyway it can be two to four players like i said and it's considered an abstract game because there's no combinatorial elements such as dice rolling or spinning or any of that stuff however it's not quite as abstract i would say as something like chess or go but anyway it's really aesthetically pleasing as well because it's based off of this premise that you are trying to build mosaics for the current king. Uh, It's based off of a king who saw mosaics and wanted to bring them back to Portugal 
I forget the specific names, but they give you a little rundown of it in the rules. Anyway, the tiles are very uh, visually appealing, and it's a tile drawing game also involving different pots, and you have to take all of one type of tile. It combines relatively simplistic rules as well as a very appealing design, and it's good for two to four players, but it plays best with two, so it's very good for someone in the situation of Emily and myself where we don't have time to really, or the ability to get together in larger groups to play games too often but we enjoyed this game we've only gotten to play it once <laughs> so i'm giving you a review of a game that i've only played a couple of times but i thought it was a very good game and it's very highly thought of by a lot of other parties so i just wanted to throw that out there in case anyone was looking for a new game i will say right now it's listed at something crazy like 50 dollars on amazon which i would not buy it for i would wait until it's on sale or it comes out in another outlet but I do, if you're a gamer and you're interested in, in different two-player games, I would suggest checking this one out. Azul, A-Z-U-L. It's a very fun game, very well-constructed, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. Ezekiel 25, 17. Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teaches my hands to war, and my fingers to fight. A multitude of the heavenly host praising God. And saying, Glory to God in the highest. So, for our Bible topic of the week, I want to look at two verses that are the same thing, uh, which is very rare in the Bible. And this is not a case where it's a verse quoting old prophecy from the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is a verse that is repeated between two Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And it's especially apropos for this episode of the podcast because this verse is used in the world of Harry Potter. It is engraved on the tombstone of Ariana Dumbledore, that would be Albus's younger sister who untimely passes away as a young child, and it says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this is Matthew 6, 21 and Luke 12, 34. In Matthew, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I think it's very heavily repeated and very important. Now, in, in the context of Harry Potter, the point is that Dumbledore's treasure was his family, and that's where his heart lay. However, when Jesus spoke these words, his point was to avoid putting your efforts and your heart and your time into treasures on earth. The previous verses from 21 in Matthew say, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is very important to remember both for Christians and non-Christians is to take a step back and think about what you're putting your treasure, your metaphorical treasure in. Is your treasure in possessions? Is it in pursuit of success at your job? Is it in your favorite baseball team? You have to be very cautious where you are truly putting your heart because those pursuits reveal both your character and what you hold most dear. In this case, Jesus, in the most famous sermon he ever gave, is, is telling us to avoid storing up treasures of the earth, to make our treasures spiritual, to lay them up 
in heaven, meaning with God and with him, with Jesus Christ. Even if you are not necessarily a believer, you can appreciate that one must store their heart in something that truly matters. And I think that's a good thing for us to all ponder on as we deal with the circumstances around the world right now is where where is our treasure is it in things is it in people where where are we putting our hearts i would encourage anyone who is uncertain of this question or if this question makes them uneasy to uh, read the entire sermon on the mount found in matthew because it really gives a glimpse into what Jesus is trying to get at when he says this. So let me reiterate, I want to encourage everyone to think upon that. Think about where their heart is, or where they believe their heart is, where they believe their treasure is. Because the answer to that question may reveal where your focus needs to shift to. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. I hope that it has bring you some amount of comfort or some laughs, and I hope that you all have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.